welcome to the Advance Your Art podcast, where we talk about the journey from artist to entrepreneur and everything in between. You've worked hard to hone your craft. Now take it to the next level with tips, techniques, strategies, and routines used by successful artists to grow their businesses and careers. Now, let's get started and have some fun with your host, Yuri Cataldo. James, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing just great. How are you, Yuri? I'm doing well as well. Just uh, looking forward to the the holidays and uh, taking a break for a bit. Yeah, no kidding. I could use one, that's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. It sounds like you've been very, very busy this last year. Yeah, that's, that's the nature of writing a book, it seems, is that there's a lot of waiting and then slow slogging through stuff and then as you get closer to launch date it's holy crap there's so much to do and that's the phase that i'm in right now sure i bet so let's uh let's get started with with a little bit more about yourself so how do you describe yourself and what you do um well i am primarily a writer it's uh, although though yeah I, i'm a writer with specific expertise that i give people advice on. I, I began primarily writing about health and fitness. I've been, you know, had a column with the Los Angeles Times that was a, a fitness advice column in the Chicago Tribune and, and you know, wrote for men's health and women's health and all that kind of stuff. But the, the way that I describe myself is more of being a writer than being a health and fitness expert, that that was, that was my real talent was as a communicator. Mm-hmm. And over time, you know, I kind of got started to get a little bit tired of the health and fitness stuff and evolved towards one of the things that I always focused on in my writing was motivation, helping people get off the couch to exercise and eat better. So I've just evolved into more general science-based motivational writing. And that's what this book is, is, is a, a science-based motivation, quote unquote, self-help book. Sure. Sure. Excellent. So what was it that got you interested in writing in the first place? Um, being an unpopular kid, I think, probably helped quite a bit. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I was I was the daydreamer that liked to tell himself stories and fantasize. And I really enjoyed reading growing up. I read a lot of fantasy and science fiction novels. And, you know, one of my biggest influences was Roger Zelazny, uh, as well as Stephen Brust with his Vlad Taltas series. And um, but then I did in in university, I struggled for a while until I figured out that uh, I really liked history. And I I did a bachelor's and a master's degree in history Mm -hmm. because it it enables you to tell a story. You know, you're you're writing about something that happened, even though it's academic analysis. That was that was something that that really caught on for me was that I just love doing that. And then when I went on and I did an MBA and I worked in in business for for many years and I always found that that my my skill as a writer was very beneficial to my career mm-hmm. and th- and at the age of forty I I decided you know what I just I want to do this full time this is what I want to do for a living and uh, and I thought about writing a novel but. Um, I, I looked having that MBA, I looked at the finances of it and said, nah, the chances of actually making a living at this are not that great. And um, and well, there was also the fact that I really wasn't very good <laughs> when it came to fiction. <laughs> 
-hmm. but health and fitness was a real passion for me. And that was one where I did that, that marketing analysis and realized, you know what? Most health and fitness writers are really crappy. I think I can do better than yeah. them. And so I, I launched into it. And within a year, I had a column at the LA Times, despite being a Canadian living in Canada. And let me tell you, there's no shortage of fitness experts in LA. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. So it's I find it fascinating because I've interviewed a number of writers on this podcast. You're the first one who has done like a cost-benefit analysis before writing a novel, and I that's a, a very interesting and exciting approach. I'm I'm curious then. So the moment you decided around 40 to stop what you were doing and then transition to writing, like did you did you have to go through some um, some hurdles? Did you were there was there fear involved? Like what was that? What were you really thinking? And and how did you push past the like trepidation to actually transition to a brand new career at forty? Well, I will tell you, Yuri, that every writer should have what I have, and that is uh, a spouse who is a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> but no, there was an opportunity that popped up that sure. um, that really cemented the fact that this was going to happen. So um, uh, there was an executive director role for a not-for-profit that was 20 hours a week mm -hmm. that still paid quite well. So I thought, I can do this job 20 hours a week. Yeah, I'm going to take a hit income-wise. But still, like there's going to be some decent money coming in until I build this up. And I just said, I said to my wife, I said, literally, the exact words were, if I don't try and do this, I'm going to die because I, I'm thinking about it for years. And she said, you got to do it. You know, we'll make it work. And uh, and so for two and a half years, I still had this reasonable paying part time job while I built up my freelancer business. And uh, and the, the thing about choosing health and fitness was that there were so many opportunities. There were so many freelancer writing opportunities. You can write books. You can do speaking. You can be a consultant. You know, you can train people. And, and there, there was just so many different potential revenue streams uh, being a well-known expert in this field. And I've actually phased out the majority of my freelance writing now because my blog is doing so well. My, mm -hmm. I have, uh, 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 not Google and AdSense, but actually a good quality <laughs> advertising company that I partnered with that, uh, that I make good money off my blog. And then, you know, there's, um, the, uh, I got a very, a very generous offer from my publisher for this book and the speaking stuff is taking off. So there was, there, there was just so my, my analysis of the potential financial upside for this made it way more viable. And I still got to focus on something that I love doing. Yeah. Now, that that being said, I have not given up on the dream of being a novelist. So now I have another 10 years <laughs> of writing experience where I feel like, OK, I'm better now. Like I might actually be able to pull a novel off. Plus, you know, I have this is my second book. Um, I have a large social media presence and, and you know, a, a, a big dedicated following that that when I get to the point where I can retire and I which isn't too far off uh, and I don't have to and I get tired of nonfiction and I don't want to do this nonfiction stuff anymore. I can say, fine, well, I can write a novel now and use my connections and my fan base. And if nobody buys it, who cares? I don't need the money anyway. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, great. But I want 
people to buy it. I'm still going to try and write a decent novel. I, sure, I don't want to sure, buy something sure. that says, I don't want people saying, wow, he really should have stuck with nonfiction because this is terrible. Right. <laughs> Worst Great. sex scene ever. <laughs> <laughs> so as you've started in your, your writing career, you, you started a, uh, a blog. Oh, actually, was it a, a website or a blog that was um, Body for Wife? Yes. So that's still my URL. Okay. And, and that, that was an old joke from friends from years ago, from when the whole body for life thing was really popular. Yes. Um, I was going to ask you about like the, that Bill Phillips body for life. Yes, connection. exactly. Bill Phillips. And yeah. my friends were all doing body for life yeah. and I was better shaped than they were. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and I had, you know, I had been quite overweight and just as an impetus, like there was an, it was, it was a joke, right? That, that right. I decided I'm going to get in shape before I propose to my girlfriend. Mm-hmm. And, and so I did. And, and I mean, it, it really didn't have anything to do with her. It was just, you know, on a whim and it worked and it turned out that I really liked fitness and, and, you know, I'd be lying if I said she didn't appreciate my efforts, yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it was, it was around 2002 thereabouts. We were all, me and my buddies were working out and they were doing the body for life thing and and somebody made a joke saying you know what's your secret and i just blurted out i'm on the body for wife program and they laughed (laughs) they thought it was funny so i said i'm that's going to be my url and even now that i've transitioned sort of away from fitness i thought well you don't when you've got a really popular url you don't change it (laughs) right that's that's you know that's internet death and so i just said okay i'm keeping the url and and because it's still it's it's who I am, and I'm still happily married, so I don't have to worry about it from that perspective. <laughs> right. So then, in 2014, you wrote uh, you wrote your first book, Lose It Right, about uh, fitness and and weight loss. So what? Why did you decide to write uh, the the fitness book? Well, because that was what I was deeply in. That was my okay. my focused area of expertise was health, fitness, weight loss, and um, I learned some lessons about about the book industry with writing that book. So we, it was, I'm like I said, I'm Canadian. That book was published by Random House Canada, the largest publishing company in the country. And, you know, we got a good advance for it and it did well in Canada. We could not sell it in the United States. And the reason for that being, you know, my, my, I ended up firing my agent, got a new agent. And, and they said that the United States is ground zero for stupid diets. And uh, and my writing has always been very science based. I'm I'm a no BS kind of guy where I was the one exposing myths and exposing stupid fad diets and that kind of stuff. And uh, and so with with this transition, part of it was was, you know, I've been doing health and fitness for many years and I was getting a little tired of it and wanted to expand my reach and expand my my knowledge base and understanding. But it was also a marketing decision where the two biggest nonfiction genres in the United States are diet books and self-help. And the thing I didn't write a diet book. I wrote a weight loss book. It is, you know, I put my MBA to work and it was about creating a personalized strategy for the reader on how they can lose weight. And there was dietary information in there, but it was still quite big picture. It wasn't a plan like a paleo diet or a blood type diet or a keto diet or some other fad, you know, you know, fancy place where expensive, you know, houses are and just eat pineapples and cabbage soup diet or some crap like that. Right. And so I wasn't going to write some pseudoscientific crap diet book just so I could sell books. 
And the other, you know, the other genre that was really popular was self-help. And I thought, well, I've learned so much from 10 years of writing motivation, like the hardest thing that people will ever do for a lot of them is lose weight. And I was good at motivating people to lose weight. And I thought, well, hell, if I can motivate people to lose weight, why can't I motivate them to do anything? So so uh, so that was expanding it out into general, again, science based motivation. There's a lot of crap in in um, in self-help that's either wishy wishy washy you know, you can do it ad nauseum, not science based. And I thought, well, I'm going to write a science based self-help motivational book. And uh, and so we did the proposal and uh, my agent sent it out. And the next day he said, yeah, you got to get got to get on a plane to New York because we got a lot of interest in this. I've got meetings set up already. And I said, hell, yeah, I'm on my way. <laughs> <laughs> that's so that's that's fantastic. And that was that the start of your your new book that's that's coming out in January. Yes, okay. that, that was uh, it, it's been a it's been a ride. I, I feel like ever since I got that book deal, yeah. uh, I feel like so this is my first big U.S. book deal. So it's it's North America uh, for St. Martin's Press, okay. which is part of Macmillan. And we've also sold U.K. rights uh, to HarperCollins. And, you know, hopefully some other international deals will come in. And uh, the, Macmillan even paid me to do the audio recording. So if people don't mind listening to my voice and they like audiobooks, then they can get the uh, the audio audio recording and listen to me read the whole damn thing. Yeah, that's great. Congratulations. Thank you. So I was wondering if you could go in just a little bit detail because the uh, the audience uh, listening is uh, is very much into the details. So. You already had a successful blog, and you were writing for multiple um, magazines. You came up with your first book. And then so when was it, I guess, in, let's say, after your first book that you decided, this is the next topic I want to want to do? And then how did you systematically start working with an agent who then pitched it to U.S. audience? Oh, I, I love talking about this stuff. So I'm happy to go into the details because um, so there was a there was a few different things. Blogging was very helpful because it allowed me it put me really in touch with the uh, the ins and outs of what goes and what doesn't. I was always fascinated when an article of mine blew up, picking apart why. And if something that I thought was going to do great died, I had to figure out, well, why did nobody read this? So that was one of the things that I started to really analyze popularity. And the two things that I came, if I could boil it down to two things, one is novelty. It's important that this needs to be something new or at least a new spin on something that maybe they haven't heard before. Uh, And the other thing is that, okay, well, something can be new, but maybe nobody cares about it. The other thing is it's got to resonate. It's got to be something that says, yes, that is important to me. I, 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 I have some type of emotional reaction to that that makes me think I've not heard of, you know, no, I've not, um, not seen a book like this before or an article like this before, but I can tell right now that I'm going to like it. And, and so those were two things that I learned via blogging. But so I wrote for, you know, I've been with the L.A. Times for eight years and still I'm there every once in a while. Same goes Chicago Tribune for for six years and and a bunch of other magazines. And uh, the way that I put it in my book proposal Mm -hmm. was that that was my brand awareness, because 
when people read the L.A. Times, they're not thinking I'm reading James Fell's article. They're thinking I'm reading the L.A. Times. They may not even notice the author most of the time. That being said, they did uh, when when they look at my blog or look at my book or whatever and say, oh, he writes for the L.A. Times. He writes for the Chicago Tribune. He must be legit. Like the it, it gives you that that branding legitimacy that makes makes you seem like you're not just some fly by night person. So that was and I so I broke that down in my proposal. The thing that really impressed the publishers was that I had high blog traffic and I had really big social media reach. I was reaching millions of people on Facebook alone each month. And that was something that they really liked was. And now that's the direct contact with potential readers, because um because when people go to bodyforwife.com, they're thinking I'm on James Fell's website. Like they they know that that and they're going to be going there again and again. And when I say, hey, I got a new book coming out there, those readers are far more likely to actually buy that book. Same thing with when they're on James Fell, James Fell's Facebook page or Twitter feed. They know who they're reading and and it's just a much more intimate contact. I'm reaching fewer people, but but these are people that are the real potential buyers. So that was something that I, I worked hard to cultivate was that blog audience and that social media audience. And I was surprised just, you know, I put all those numbers for the past, the previous six months into my book proposal and the um, the publishers, they all said, wow, like your numbers are great. They they were like, yeah, L.A. Times, Chicago, Freedom, uh, that, that's cool. That's great. Let's talk about these numbers. And, and so that was that was a fascinating insight into the publishing industry about how much respect they had for um, Facebook presence specifically uh, and and blog traffic. So that's that's one side of it. The other side, the idea generation mm-hmm. that that I came to the uh, that, you know, I talked about about the idea has to be novel and it has to resonate. Well, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out that that I knew that my issue here was that uh, it wasn't lack of reach. I'd had this big platform for quite a while. My issue was that I just didn't have the right idea yet. I hadn't positioned myself properly yet. And so I had this I, I fired my old agent because he wasn't doing anything. And uh, and he thought every idea I had was a great one, which was BS. And <laughs> and so I went to a new agent that was a referral from a friend and they were vicious. I'm I was trying to still be kind of weight loss oriented and they were crapping on ideas saying, no, that's not going to do it. No, not good enough. And then I got the recommendation to read Malcolm Gladwell uh, just because he's such a mega bestseller. And I and so I started reading Malcolm Gladwell thinking, yeah, this guy's got a he's got an angle. He's got a formula here. And uh, and so I kind of copied his about half of his formula. I borrowed his formula and some other formulas and kind of came up with my own concept for a book idea, which is find something that people have heard of before. Like, for example, with Blink, people have heard of gut instinct uh, or with the tipping point. They've heard of practice makes perfect. And so with my book, The Holy Shit Moment, it's about the life changing epiphany. People know about that. Like they've, they, they're familiar with it. Right. And, and so that was the part of the formula that fit. And the, uh, it, it was also the kind of counterintuitive angle, like with Blink, the argument is being made that in some cases, going with your gut instinct is a better decision than careful deliberation, you know, and doing lots of research. And in my book, 
we talk about how, you know, maybe the whole thing of the tortoise winning the race, slow and steady baby steps to behavior change isn't the right way to do it. Maybe you should just do a sudden leap because of this transformative life changing experience and just go in a totally new direction, fast and furious. And and then there was the whole include anecdotes and and expert interviews and and lots of science and but then i added a considerable how-to component Mm -hmm. but but really so that was i created the outline of of how the book would be organized before i had the idea Mm -hmm. i just knew that that it had to fit within that model and then i spent you know one of the things i talk about in the book is um how you have these massive life-changing insights often is through analysis followed by distraction. So you spend a lot of time analyzing the problem and, and thinking and, and collecting research and then go outside and get away from technological distractions and just do, you know, free association. And, and I was, I spent three months in the saddle of my bike, <laughs> just going for rides in a good mood, looking at the mountains and the trees and the grass and, and just knew that eventually it's going to pop in and and eventually it did and uh and it it came to me because of uh i saw a guy wearing a boston marathon shirt and i thought to myself hey i did that and then i remembered that i used to really suck at running and that triggered (laughs) the memory about how my life changed very quickly and i thought that's it that that's you know the whole life-changing epiphany that's that's my book idea and i knew in an instant that this was the book that i had to write and well i mean the first thing i did was i pulled over and i pulled up my phone and i started googling to see if anybody else had done it (laughs) (laughs) and there had been um there you know there'd been some academic studies and there there'd been some purely anecdotal like just stories of life-changing epiphanies Mm -hmm. no no science just pure you know essays of of anecdotes um no analysis no scientific investigation certainly no how-to component and the how-to component came later that was my agent's suggestion because i thought it would be you know i i thought ah, yeah i don't i don't know that seems kind of ridiculous telling people how to have a life-changing epiphany and my agent said well could you and i thought well, I don't know. (laughs) And so so I start doing all these interviews with these, you know, world leading researchers and ask him that question. And they said, oh, yeah, absolutely. You can prime for this. And and there's a book, a great book called The Eureka Factor by John Cuneos and Mark Beeman. They're a pair of psychology professors. And they did some fascinating research using fmri and eeg technology to analyze the the moment of sudden insight and i interviewed mark beeman for the book and one of the things that they say in their book the eureka factor is that these insights are like cats um they can't necessarily be called but they can be coaxed so that's what the whole how-to component of the holy shit moment is is setting yourself up to coax this massive transformative event. And I'm clear there's, there's no guarantees it's going to work, right? We're, we're just trying to set the stage to dramatically increase the likelihood as well as, you know, engaging in some some behaviors that even if you don't have that massive life-changing moment, you're going to be better off. Like you're going, you're still going to get value out of this process. Yeah. That's fascinating again thank you so much you covered yeah, a, lot a lot of, of details but you did yeah. ask for details i did no no that's 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 great uh so the other detail question i want to ask is 
Um, so the different anecdotes you wrote about in your book, how did you meet those individuals? Or I guess, or did you meet them and interview them about those their experiences and and how did you decide which ones to use in the book? So they were all um, done over the phone. Okay. Because I don't think there was anybody in my in my local city, and I wasn't gonna, you know, I I interviewed one woman in Australia. I wasn't gonna fly down there for an yeah. interview. <laughs> so over the phone or via Skype was the way that that I did them. But um, you know, having that large Facebook presence really came in handy. So I just, uh, it, it was funny because as soon as I got this idea on my bike ride and I got home, I posted to Facebook. Um, asking if people had had such a life changing moment where where suddenly they knew that they were delivered this quest, this vision that they had to fulfill and that they were overwhelmingly motivated to do it. And they did do it. You know, they followed through and they, they adhered to the new path. And my comments field blew up. I was amazed at how many people responded. And uh, and I was like, Wow, so this is really a thing. Like this happens to a lot of people, yeah. and and some of those people I ended up interviewing for the book, and then other ones like then it took there was the whole fleshing out the pitch and and you know working at it. And when I when I said to my agent saying this is my book idea, they said okay, write an introduction. This that that was the first book idea that they didn't shit on. <laughs> <laughs> and then they said, write an introduction. So I wrote an introduction. They said, congratulations. You pulled it off. This is good stuff. Keep going. So it was um, uh, then I then I just, you know, just having a big network of people. And and I did more call outs just for stories and and did some investigation. And, and I had way more people potentially to talk to than I than I ever would have needed um, just because, again, that that uh, that large social media reach. And that's been a boon to my career for years that any time I needed an anecdote for an article, whether it was, you know, I wrote a piece for the Chicago Tribune about um, childhood sexual abuse and weight gain mm -hmm. and got one hundred and fifty emails from people willing to tell me their story about how they'd been abused as uh, as a child and how it contributed to their their weight gain as an adult. That anytime anytime I ask for an interview subject on something, I am just because I've developed a reputation as a guy that doesn't screw over the people that he interviews. Mm -hmm. um, that that when people when I interview someone, um, my reputation is that that I'm going to be kind and compassionate and honest and accurate and uh and i'm not going to try and make it seem like they said something that they didn't so uh so when i put out calls for these types of of conversations where people are pouring their hearts out to me i'm i've been very fortunate that there's lots of people who are willing to talk to me about it yeah where did the title or the at least the wording of your title of your book come from Oh, that's a great question. And uh, and that there, there's kind of an interesting answer. I didn't like the title at first. <laughs> so <laughs> so um, we did not have a title until about two weeks before we were getting ready to pitch. Mm -hmm. And and I'd, I'd had some ideas and I wasn't super happy. And I was talking to my agent. I was in a panic saying we don't have a title yet. And he's like, yeah, don't worry about it. We'll, we'll figure something. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then he said. Okay, send me 10 or like send me a bunch 
of title ideas, like just any, any, whatever pops in your head, any, anything you think. And, and so I came up with, I think it was a list of about 10 and, and the title for the holy shit moment was way down the list. Mm-hmm. And then he came back a couple days later saying, we're calling it the holy shit moment. And I said, really? I didn't, I didn't really like that one very much. And he said, don't worry about it. This is all we're, all we care about now is making the sale. And I can tell you that publishers will react well to this. And if you, and, and, you know, we're not married to it. It's just about getting the sale. And later on, we can we can change it if you want. Yeah. And I said, OK, fine. That sounds good. And uh, and we had the I can't even remember we had the crappiest subtitle ever. It was so it was way too long and way too too focused. And it was just stupid. And uh, and so we, we went in and every publisher said, I love this title. And I'm like, really? <laughs> and. And then when we went with St. Martin's and I had my first meeting with my publisher, my editor, uh, who's just a wonderful woman. I adore. Her. And uh, and I said, you know, like I, I'm if you want want to change this title, I'm totally cool with that because I'm I'm not real super excited about it. And she goes, oh, we, well, we really like it. I mean, if somebody comes up with something better. Yeah, it's good to know that you're not married to it. But but no, we see no reason to change it. And and then later on, it was actually the the head publisher, I guess, at St. Martin's that came up with the subtitle, which the instant I heard it, I said, that's a great subtitle, which is how lasting change can happen in an instant, because it's just so specific. It was it, it nailed it. That's what the book is about, how lasting change can happen in an instant. And I was like, that's perfect. Uh, but I started as I started writing, I started referring to these events as having a holy shit moment and Everybody we talked to just said, that title's great. It's so perfect. And it, so I warmed up to it where I said, you know, like this, this event, this life changing epiphany is a, is a thing where you go, holy shit. And uh, my life has changed. I thought, yeah, okay, fine. It's a good title. We'll stick with it. Yeah. <laughs> but I heard nothing but great things about it. And it was, it was everyone else telling me it was a great title that I finally said, yeah, okay, I guess it's all right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's great. So since your your book is about creating change and lasting change, what is some of the worst advice you've come across that people give out about creating change? Oh, the worst advice. Um, well, yeah. I would say, yeah, uh, suffering, <laughs> like something that 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 you have to endure suffering or or just power through on raw willpower and grit, because mm-hmm. that's the fundamental thing about this book that that I challenge in terms of traditional behavior change models that uh, that when people focus on behavior change it's like yeah have you seen the movie Shrek oh yeah okay so in Shrek you know forgive the terrible impersonation here he says ogres are like onions layers and and people are like onions too it's called Rokich's model of personality mm-hmm. and the, the external layer are behaviors and actions, and then we've got, you know, attitudes and beliefs, and then go even further, you've got uh, values, and then you've got your uh, your core identity, yourself, who you really are. And when you focus strictly on those external actions and behaviors, you're generally in conflict with the more powerful drivers of your internal identity. That's why they preach slow and steady, baby steps you know, towards dragging yourself across a tipping point of habit formation, because if you try and change too much, 
at once, then you're going to hate it and you're not going to be able to stick with it. And and so and that being said, there's a lot of advice out there saying, oh, you know, it's New Year's Day. You've got a blood alcohol concentration that would tranquilize Charlie Sheen. And they want you to drag your butt out to the gym and, and start this new lifestyle whole hog because, oh, yeah, make big change. Uh, yeah, that generally doesn't work unless you've had some type of transformative experience that changes your core identity. So this book essentially ignores the um well it doesn't ignore it because sometimes you need to engage in the slow and steady behavior change to trigger the transformative moment um where it it pushes you way along the motivational spectrum but the idea is to make it essentially behavior change essentially effortless because it's not changing behaviors it's changing you and who you are so when you go through these transformative experiences, the answer to what changed is, well, kind of everything changed. Like I just became a different person in an instant where whatever it was, this goal that became my mission in life went from feeling like drudgery to feeling like it was my destiny and I had to do it and nothing was going to stop me and I didn't. There was no suffering involved. It was uh, it it would have been suffering to not do it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Great. So in in everything that you've done and experienced so far, what would you say has been the best advice you've ever received? Um, Well, I would say that that it, it, it wasn't advice that a person directly gave to me, but I write about it in chapter one, which was what triggered my own life changing experience. And uh, so I was I was in university. I was flunking out badly. I was about to get kicked out. I was drinking too much. I was overweight. I was in debt and and I was in a state of despair. And I was reading the school newspaper, reading the the funny sort of classified ad section where people would, you know, have quotes and witticisms and proclamations of undying love or temporary lust or whatever. And and somebody put a quote in there from folk singer Joan Baez, of all people, that changed my life. So this was the moment that that took me from the the drunken, overweight dropout into a very driven person who got two master's degrees and got in great shape and, you know, raised a couple of straight A students and been happily married and a successful author and all that stuff. So the quote was, action is the antidote to despair. And that has become my life mantra that anytime something goes sideways and I, and I think, oh, man, this sucks, you know, rather than I may wallow in self-pity for a little while. But, but generally that pops into my head saying that that any time that there is a, a big problem that in life that I have to face, I remember that and think, OK, work the problem, figure it out, take action so that you don't sink into despair over this and find a way to fix it. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, James, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. I really appreciate it. If well, thank the... you, Yuri. It's been a of lot course. of fun. <laughs> oh, good, good, good. I'm glad. <laughs> if the uh, the listeners want to buy your book on January 22nd or read more of your writing, 
where is the best place they can go for both of those? Okay, so the the hub of my life is bodyforwife.com. Mm-hmm. Um, again, wife, the, the nice lady that lets me see her naked. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm very shameless in my promotions of my book on that page, so they can, uh, they can find it quite easily. They just click the book tabs, and there is a link to uh, whichever platform they desire, if it's electronic or print or audio. I think I found every single possible purchasing link and and put it on that page. Um, I've got a blog there, too, where I swear a lot. <laughs> so so uh, and I'm very opinionated. So uh, so if people don't don't mind uh, reading some some pretty aggressive profanity laden opinions on my blog, they're welcome to click that tab. Um, I'm on Twitter, but I don't like Twitter too much because I'm way too long winded. And that one is at body for wife and my Facebook where I have way more fun uh, and have a, a bigger, very, I, I have a great, very interactive audience on Facebook. I love those people. Uh, and that's slash body for wife. Okay. Perfect. Again, thank you so much. So I just want to iterate again to the audience that it's um, – so the holy shit moment, how lasting change can happen in an instant being released on January 22nd. Uh, pre-orders are on Amazon. I'm staring at it right now. And I'm also uh, – I'm James is very nice and um, gave me a copy of his book, so I'm in the middle of it right now, and it, it is uh, an absolute pleasure to read it. So thank you again, James, for taking the time to chat with me. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Yuri. It's been an honor. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Advance Your Hour podcast. If you like this episode, please go into iTunes and give us a five-star rating. And while you're there, hit the subscribe button so that every single time I release a new episode, it will go directly to you without even thinking about it. If you're interested in hearing older episodes, please go to AdvanceYourArt.com where you can find the catalog of everything I've done so far, as well as contact information and projects I'm working on. Thank you again, and have a great day.